Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. At least it's evening here in Florida, sunny Florida, which right now is having a uh, wonderful rainstorm. Um, what's left over from... Uh, the hurricane that hit Mexico, which uh, when it was hitting was called the uh, largest Pacific storm in history, another storm larger than anything that's come before it. Um, Add that to the list of, uh, no, there's nothing happening in the weather that we have to worry about or do anything about. Uh, And since we're talking tonight about emotions, uh, I've become very fearful and very anxious, and I'll talk about both those emotions tonight, um, when, the, when this weather change uh, continues to happen on such a large scale and so rapidly. But we're going to talk tonight about the emotions and the stories they tell and the way in which they define the stories we live by. Um, <clears throat> and some of the myths that surround emotions and uh, what they are, and then I'm going to go through a list of some of them because some of them are really interesting to discuss on their own. And we'll see where that takes us. And anybody who would like to call in and join the discussion would be 646-716-7756. And let's see where we go. So, what are emotions? Emotions are the product of evolution. Uh, The same as our ability to think and use tools, emotions define the directions we live, what we move towards and what we move away from. Um, They are uh, essential to our survival, not only on an individual basis, but on a social basis. And uh, the myth that is often said, talked about, particularly from people who are uh, college-educated, well-educated, is that one must be free of emotions. Um, And that is impossible and dangerous for those individuals. Uh, Because to not know your feelings, and I've said this many times before, to deny your feelings is to act upon them without realizing that you're acting upon them. And therefore, not being able to use cognitive intelligence to shape their direction and, their sh- and to control what they uh, uh, express uh, in a way that makes them motivate us in positive ways, in productive ways, in ways that increase our uh, creativity, increase our lifespan, uh, and uh, help us avoid the catastrophes that can happen when we act purely on emotion. Um, without uh, a, a thought as to how they arose and what they want us to do or what's necessary for us to do, uh, given the, what the tale of the emotion, the story of the emotion involves in our behavior. So uh, the people who are very often act 
uh, with outbursts, act in rage without thought, are often people who are overly controlled. Uh, either they don't think uh, on a very sophisticated level, or they're overthought. Um, we constantly hear in the media, uh, he snapped. He was such a quiet guy, and then he took a gun and he blew away five people. Uh, he snapped. Uh, rubber bands snap. Fingers snap. People don't snap. This was something waiting to happen. This was an individual whose emotions uh, were not being attended to, were not being directed with any kind of intelligence uh, or without uh, the social consequences that were involved in the direction that these emotions would take when they took over behavior. So that's one of the myths. <clears throat> the second myth, and I, if anybody who follows my show, you'll be bored to hear me say uh, the same thing, that what we've done is taken the emotions and divided them into positive and negative emotions. It is true that some emotions feel good, to be happy, to feel love, um, to feel pride. Uh, all are very positive experiences. To feel anxiety, shame, and guilt, uh, fear, are negative experiences. But that doesn't mean the emotions are negative. It simply means that the positive emotions reinforce behavior in a positive way. They move us towards something. They increase behavior. Shame, guilt, fear are negative in the sense that they are negatively reinforcing. They tell us to move away, to shut down various behaviors, to stop various behaviors, to do something different than we've been doing. And they are as important to our survival and the quality of our lives and what makes us human as any other uh, emotions, whether they feel good uh, or otherwise. And finally, myth number three grows out of myth number two. Painful emotions can be seen as disorders, as medical problems, to be drugged. And throughout history, people have been drugging their negative emotions, their painful emotions, rather than attending to them, rather than asking about their meaning. They fly from the emotions into a bottle of liquor, into cocaine, into marijuana. And I'm not against the use of these uh, uh, drugs, nor am I against the use of the psychiatric drugs. What I am uh, uh, frightened by are an individual who will act out in a drunk, in a drunken state, in some violent way, not because he merely drank, and that was the product of, of his drinking. It was that the cognitive ability to control the emotions that have been there all along, the hate, the fear, uh, were controlled as long as there wasn't the drug uh, uh, in that person's system, especially in high doses. And the acting out occurred uh, not because of the alcohol, which is, again, a myth. Uh, he's an addicted personality. We can't hold him or her responsible for their behavior. Um, but because 
the capacity to deal with the emotion, to understand the emotion, and to direct its expression in an appropriate, effective way uh, was prevented. And the same thing happens with the psychiatric drugs. When people take psychiatric drugs, and I'm not against psychiatric drugs, for people to become more comfortable. But to tell people that anxiety is an illness and they have to shut it down is to prevent them from reaching the truths, to searching for the truths that anxiety wants them to find. Anxiety is uh, a friend of mine who I haven't seen in a long time said, it's the fire alarm of the personality. It's the fire alarm in the brain. There's a fire and it needs to be attended to. Not that we go to sleep and close the garage door and pretend that the fire isn't starting to consume the house. Uh, These psychiatric drugs will cut anxiety. Alcohol is probably the most powerful and quick-acting psychotropic drug. Uh, If these drugs are used for positive reasons, I have no argument. If they help a person express and control and understand emotion, I have no problem. But when we shut down the human brain uh, and prevent an individual from understanding one of life's most important and, and uh, uh, directive emotions, like anxiety, we are not helping a person live better, but live worse. And I will spend some time, if I don't get to it tonight, uh, I'll get to it another time, uh, helping individuals who listen to this deal with their anxiety in a productive way. Um, I did this with hundreds of students in my teaching career. And many of those students uh, would come to me afterwards and says the exercises I gave them and the understanding and the meaning of uh, the anxiety that they began to understand uh, as an important function in their adaptation to life, in their survival, in the improvement of the quality of their life, uh, was, was not only effective but permanent. That they won't need those drugs anymore. That they drink less. Uh, that they're lo- doing less to escape from themselves uh, because uh, they have begun to say out loud, anxiety is my friend. It will take me to the truth, which is something I deeply believe. So that's where we are. Uh, That's what I believe, that anxiety, that all the emotions have a survival function, an adaptive function. We would not be human without them. Uh, When we cut them loose, when we pretend they're not there, we get ourselves into very serious kinds of trouble. Yes, a person can deal with their anxiety to the point that becomes panic and immobilizes their life. Yes, that can happen. Yes, that's a serious problem for an individual. But to me, the misunderstanding is added to, the difficulties are added to, when we say, well, you have an illness, and for the rest of your life, you're going to have to take some powerful, brain-altering, psychotropic drug. Uh, You want to take it while we work together? 
You want to use it in, in low doses over a period of time so that uh, you can deal more effectively with yourself as a human being, with the others in your life, with whom that anxiety or those emotions uh, have such deep meaning. Yes, that's okay. But that your brain is damaged and that uh, you are genetically uh, inferior, that you have a mental disorder, a sickness, an illness uh, that has to be monitored by medicine uh, or pseudo-medicine for the rest of your life. I'm sorry. I will oppose that till the day I die. Uh, and, and, and I feel very strongly about that. And I uh, have always tried to help people uh, understand their emotions, whatever they are. So let's go through some of the emotions. Um, probably the most powerful, important, uh, positive emotion, the emotion that feels good when we feel it, when we have it in our lives, and uh, 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 very, very difficult and painful when it's missing, is love. And the opposite of love is not to me hate. Hate is another story altogether that I will talk about. The opposite of, of love is loneliness, emptiness, the feeling uh, that uh, we are alone in the world and nobody really cares. Because it is when we are loved and we experience being loved, when we experience that we are the most important person to somebody, as important, to, uh, themsel as important we are to them as they are to themselves that we feel connected and alive in a way uh, that no other emotion can produce. And the absence of love uh, is to feel alone and isolated, uh, and, and the struggle to find love uh, can take us in all kinds of directions. Um, one of the myths about love is that you can't love another until you love yourself. And indeed, I think you need to love and care and respect for yourself. And I think the capacity to love is genetically and evolutionarily built into probably most all of us. And I don't say all of us because I really do believe that there are exceptions in, in, in human behavior, in, in human beings due to genetics and due to uh, other factors that make some people incapable of love or being loved or loving. But I think that's a very small number of people. But to feel love, I think you have to be loved. And here I become rather psychoanalytic, and I become rather developmental in my thinking. Um, the luckiest children in the world, the luckiest people in the world, are people who are born into a family that would die for them. Uh, that, would, uh, that, that their being brings a pleasure that is greater than any other pleasure that they could have. Some of the very interesting aspects of this, um, I think evolutionarily, mothers tend to love their children uh, more than anybody else. And one of the uh, great love triangles that gets experienced in, in, in most relationships, marriages, is when that baby is born, the husband... Uh, discovers that uh, however he must have been loved, that lucky fellow to have found love and love, uh, that baby comes first. In fact, there were some interesting studies done a number of years ago 
where they would ask um, people, you, uh, tell people you're in a rowboat, it's sinking. Uh, your husband, your spouse, and your child is with you. Who would you save? Because you can't save them both. The large number of women, the, the largest percentage of women, uh, not all, but most, said they would save the baby. Uh, husband, <laughs> you're on your own. Husbands often said they would save uh, boyfriends. The fathers would often say, I'd save my child. But many of them would say, I could save my wife because I could have more children with her. Um, on a personal note, I discovered that however I loved my children, and I think I did very much, and I think they knew it and know it, um, nothing compared to uh, my wife's feelings for them. Um, my son tells the story almost to this day, and uh, he's approaching his own middle age at this point. Um, and he asked me, why is it that mommy gets so much more upset if I don't do well in school, I don't do my homework, than you? And my response was, and I really meant this, she loves you more. It's not that I don't love you, but uh, she loves you with a fierceness, with, with a, a, an intensity that uh, I, as a male, uh, or, or maybe might limit my own personality. I, I, I don't know what it is. But however I love you, and I would die for you in a second without thinking about it, um, uh, that is, is uh, uh, a truth for me, that that, uh, that love is an intensity uh, and has a quality uh, that uh, I, I, I'm in awe of. I'm, I'm in awe of. Um, a related emotion to love, particularly in long-term relationships, is liking. I have seen families uh, where love existed, but nobody liked each other. Parents who would die for their children, but don't want to spend any time with them. Children who felt the same way about parents. Brothers and sisters. Uh, when there was danger, when there was uh, something that was attacking the family, would come together like the fingers on a fist. Uh, the older brother would protect the younger brother. The younger would uh, search out and try to protect his older brother, sister. And yet, they don't spend any time together because however they love each other, that is, they're defined as, as an important, you're important to me in a way that nothing else can be important to me. Um, to make, in, in survival terms of the, in biological evolutionary theory, your genes are part of me and therefore they must survive. On a psychological, on a social level, the importance of your being is as great as my being. Um, but I, let's not have dinner together because I don't want to be with you. I really have trouble liking you. Creates all kinds of interesting conflicts. I want to go back to loneliness uh, for a second. Um, I had many people I worked with over the years and knew um, who could be alone without feeling lonely. And others who could not be alone for a second because the moment they were alone, the moment the music stopped, the moment the, the, the excitement stopped, the moment the party was over, uh, they went into a deep, dark place because their loneliness was unbearable. Um, 
it's important to love yourself, to care about yourself, so you can be alone and enjoy your own company. However, there are people for whom those feelings are minimal. They have not been loved enough. They have not been important to anybody for a variety of reasons. They were orphans. They were uh, rejected by parents. Uh, they were the um, black sheep of the family. I have a, a, a good friend who has written some really interesting stuff about, um, where's his book? Uh, oh, where is his book? I can't be. Yeah, Healing the Hurting Soul uh, by Lewis Wynn, psychologist out in um, uh, Arizona somewhere. I think it's, uh, he's out west. Anyway, uh, it's a lovely little book, Healing the Hurting Soul. Uh, and he, he writes about what happens to the individual who can be the black sheep of the family, uh, where there are favorite children. Um, oh, I have somebody. Hello? Hello? Hi, how are you? Hi. I'm good. Who are you? Uh, my name is Mike. Yes. And I, I was just listening to your conversation, and I was... Uh, well, you were listening to my kinda, oratory. Now we have well, a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to be professorial, so I thank you for calling in. Shall I go on, or do you have a question? Well, you know, I, w I was just kind of listening to uh, to everything you were saying. And um, do you think emotions are you're born with emotions, and or are they? You're born with them. You're born you're with the born capacity with them? for them. Yes, or are they, they evolved? Are you know, they, evolutionary psychologists, evolutionists look for behaviors that exist everywhere in every culture. All right, and when they find a pattern of behavior, everybody... yeah. Well, I when know they find a pattern of behavior that's love. universal, right? I'm sorry, but I mean, I know everybody's born. Everybody's born with love. No, you know, I don't think parents. so. I think you're born with the potential for love. And I think because of my 50 years of experience working with people, people who have never been loved don't know what it is. It's like a blind person who's born blind and you can't, he doesn't know what red is. You can't describe it. Now, I've seen people who have never been loved who experienced love later in life. And sometimes that was even from a therapist or that was from a teacher or that was from a cleric or that was somebody they met by accident on the bus who became a friend and they the, the capacity was re aroused, was aroused, and they found what love felt like. So that's what I believe. And I can't prove this by the way, but it's what my experience right. tells me. But then, so let me go how, on to some of the other motions. Children... Stay with me if you like, okay? Yeah, um, sure. yeah I will. Okay, thank you. Um, pride I think it's hard not to have a sense of pride or live without a feeling uh, that what you do is worth something. Uh, I think we all love and need some admiration, some positive reinforcement. There's all kinds of studies about uh, the bad boss and the good boss. When the bad boss helps people feel proud about their work, they work twice as hard. <laughs> when the bad boss... Uh, I'm sorry, the good boss does that. The bad boss uh, won't say anything but negative. 
that individuals don't feel that pride. They end up with feelings, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. Uh, it makes it very hard to do the job. It becomes uh, all work and no play. Uh, one, of, one of my themes that I've used over the years in shows is that play is any activity you do for its own sake. And work is any activity you do only for something outside of itself. So when you work, just go to job, all it is is money, and you put up with something that you're really not interested in, you're working. If you do something that you really love, and the lucky people not only are loved, but they have love for the things they do, and they feel pride in it, and there's creativity, um, it's a very different experience because then they're playing you know, then the eight hours or the nine hours that they work goes very, very fast. Uh, I don't think I have to tell you if you do something just purely out of obligation. The clock ticks very slowly. Although clocks don't tick anymore, do they? They just, uh, they just move. <clears throat> um, shame. Very important emotion, shame. Shame and guilt are very often confused together. We tend to be a guilt society. Uh, India, for example, is a shame society where the tribe still is very close, where people's opinions really matter a lot. Then when you're held in contempt and disgust, and that's the condition to feel shame, important people look at you and what you see on their face is shock, sh shock, disgust, and contempt. Like, you know, when you got caught with your pants down. Uh, by somebody important to you, and they look at you with that expression of, oh, my God, what did you do? That is shame. And shame uh, is an important emotion to get us to stop doing things that the people important in our lives uh, would hurt us for, reject us for, withdraw their love, withdraw their affection, withdraw their support. The problem with shame is when you are ashamed of something that is essential to who you are. Uh, we are living in my lifetime, and I don't know how old you are, but I sense probably it's your lifetime too. Um, if you know gay people, when they lived in the closet, there was always the danger of shame uh, and, and the punishment that would occur if they were to be found out. For a long time, psychiatry... Uh, and the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, was, uh, uh, had a, 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 a homosexuality was a serious mental disturbance. When the gay revolution took place, when it started in the 70s into the 80s, the psychiatrists got together, uh, and like they often do, they voted that out of existence. In other words, you can't prove it's an illness, you can't prove it's not an illness because it's declared to be an illness, like any behavior that we agree is a problem, and then we turn it into pseudo-medical magic. Uh, we, we make it into something that needs to be treated so it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, the psychiatrists discovered that maybe 10 or 15% of themselves uh, were also gay, and they didn't want this crap anymore. So they stood up and they yelled, and it was voted out of existence. But before that, uh, gays lived with incredible kinds of shame that their parents would find out. And the suicide rate was very high. Because shame, when we experience it in an intense way, makes us not want to exist. You know, if you've ever felt shame, uh, and I certainly have, 
The feeling is I wish a hole would open up, I could jump into it and disappear. When there's chronic sure. shame, when we're shamed about the very existence of who we are, uh, when people are shamed of race or shamed of, ashamed of poverty, uh, all kinds of, of really difficult behaviors are going to emerge because uh, you don't want to exist under those circumstances. The most depressed people, right. when I work with them over the years, uh, would say, I wish I didn't exist. I wish I hadn't been born. There was a self-hatred that was very much a part of a chronic feeling of shame. Uh, don't look yourself to anybody in the eye. When, when I first began in my college to get large numbers of Haitian kids, I didn't understand the, the shame of the Haitian culture as a control mechanism. And a child uh, and a younger person and a person lower on the social order is not allowed to look into the eyes of a superior. You look away because you're supposed to be ashamed in relation to that individual. And I used to work with some of these kids, and I didn't understand. I would say to a kid with anger, can you look me in the eye? And finally, one of the kids says, I'm not allowed to look you in the eye. You're a professor. I don't look you in a person like you in the eye. Uh, Americans don't quite understand that because we do have a much more, I think, egalitarian notion of looking people in the eye uh, and standing up and, you know, pushing out our chest and saying, I'm here uh, with, with whoever, uh, except maybe movie stars, because we get so starstruck, I think, that uh, we don't want to look them in the eye. We want them to look us in the eye, but not the other way. Right. So shame is important. Now, guilt. Let's talk a little about guilt. Guilt also controls behavior, and it's important to know when you feel guilty, that when we feel guilty, about what it's, what, what, what it's about. One of the things I heard all my career, and, and as a teacher, as a therapist, was, you made me feel guilty. I don't think anybody ever made anybody feel guilty. If you tell me I should feel guilty because I just robbed the bank, I'm going to laugh because I the bank. But if you are my parent or my wife or somebody important to me and tell me you really hurt me, you've done something that, that is difficult for me, I feel guilt, not because you made me feel guilt, but because I feel the guilt because I believe your perception. For me to feel guilt, I have to believe what you tell me I did wrong or I tell myself was a transgression. And when people accept they, they feel guilt, of course, the Catholics invented a mechanism to reduce the guilt, and that was confession and forgiveness. Uh, during the years of Vietnam, when more and more men came back, and I saw large numbers of individuals uh, suffering from, again, the, the stupid uh, diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, we tend people, send people to kill and be killed. We send them into hell. Whether the hell is justified, uh, uh, like World War II, or like for many of us, Vietnam, which was never justified. It was, it was a war that we should never have gotten into. And, and the evidence for me historically is that if Kennedy hadn't been shot, he would have pulled us out of it because he recognized he was making a serious mistake politically and militarily. Uh, you don't get caught in, in a civil war, uh, in sectarian wars, 
uh, and expect to do anything other than a lot of bad stuff, and bad stuff happened to you. Um, in any event, um, these, these guys all were filled with guilt, and what they needed was forgiveness. Uh, I, I'm not in a position uh, to feel that, that God forgives you if you're a believer. Incredibly important. But then the, the Catholic confession goes on to say, promise you're not going to do that again. It's not merely okay to go and cheat on your wife and confess it and then go out and cheat on your wife the next night because you had absolution for it. That's cheap. Uh, right. I remember when, you remember Jimmy Swaggart, the, the, oh, yeah. the southern preacher who uh, would preach right. family values, and then he got caught in the whorehouse right. with sex, and he got up in front of the parishioners and he said, I know Jesus, I know you forgive me. I mean, <laughs> I mean this comic routine, that, and he really did oh, yeah. very well. He cried crocodile tears. Um, I don't think that really works on the inside. But then again, I don't know what was on his, what was really in his inside, because I think there are people again, not too many of them, who are really quite incapable of feeling guilt because they can justify uh, things so well. Another aspect to guilt and other emotions: we are vulnerable feeling shame and guilt because we're told things in childhood that are not true, and we have no capacity to uh, question the truth of it. We're vulnerable. Um, uh, when I talk about anxiety, because I think that to me is one of the more interesting emotions, important but interesting emotion. Um, anxiety, uh, 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 when, when somebody says, for example, I'll give you a good example of this, a patient I work with who is riddled with guilt who believe, and shame, believes she shouldn't exist. Her mother constantly would tell her, you caused your father to leave us. You were a bad child, and you caused your father to leave us. She could not get past the thought that this was not anything she had done. She was not capable, when she was three or four years old, of wishing the father to leave or wishing the marriage. She didn't quite have the capacity to even understand that. But this is something she heard all the time. And she heard other things, like, I wish you were never born, you know, uh, uh, I had a, a right. woman who was diagnosed for many years as schizophrenic, whose mother was a really fanatical, uh, fanatic uh, uh, Catholic, uh, who sin was everywhere, and the child was born in sin, and there was no forgiveness for her. And when she was five years old, she opened up the newspaper, and there were the first pictures of the concentration camps, 1945. This goes back. Um, and she was convinced that since she was the worst sinner in the world, she had been convinced, I am the worst sinner. There was nothing about me that was in any way positive. She was convinced somehow she was connected to the death of the millions of people in the camps. Now, from an adult mm -hmm. point of view, that's totally irrational. And it is. I mean, right. She needs a lot of help right. to work that through. But from a child's point of view, it's very hard to know the difference between the rational and the irrational because they are essentially irrational. They're pre-operational, right. to use Piaget's term. They don't have the kind of logic that says, wait a second, I mean, what could I possibly have done to kill six million people? Uh, but if I'm tainted, if I'm morally tainted, and this is something that she believed all of her life, if I well, morally your parents tainted, program you. Huh? Right. 
your parents yeah, yeah. program you. You'll get programmed, absolutely. Right. Uh, another emotion, boredom. Now, people don't very often think about boredom. My wife asked me tonight, what are you going to talk about? And I said, some of the emotions, including boredom. And she says, is boredom an emotion? Very much related to anxiety. So it's going to be the lead-in to my, to my uh, discussion on anxiety. I'm going to spend some time on anxiety because I think that's a very easy emotion to learn to deal with. That's what's so interesting. It could be disabling, but it's also probably one of the easiest to... Uh, to deal with because you don't have to deprogram anything in terms of what your mother told you or your father told you. Um, uh, in any event, boredom to me, and this I t- took a lot of thought, particularly when I went go through periods where I was bored. I think boredom is a message from us to ourselves that says, do something, you're wasting your life. You're taking your one precious life and you're pissing it away on something you don't find is important. This can happen at work. It could happen when you're sitting around in the afternoon. Um, how many people are, you can see in your life and yourself and around you who are constantly looking for busy work to keep them self-distracted? Because the minute they stop, either they become anxious or in a related way, they become bored. I'm bored. I had students for many, you know, in every class. In fact, sometimes my classes were uh, uh, more bored than they were uh, um, um, interested. And I could blame myself and say, gee, I must have been boring to these kids. But since like guilt, the guilt is theirs, the boredom is theirs. It's not me because I was never, ever bored while I was teaching. I could be frustrated, but never, ever bored. That was just a vital, exciting kind of a thing to do, to interact with people. Uh, And and when a student would come up to me and say, I get it, I understand it. Uh, And you know that they'll never be the same after this in a positive way, that they understand something, uh, that they have a way of thinking and dealing with their life that's opened up. It's like stepping up on a mountain and seeing a distance that you couldn't see. Uh, or, or so many of us spend our lives looking out a small doorway, you know, a hole in a door, and all of a sudden the door's taken away, you walk through the door, and, and the vista is, is breathtaking. Uh, good education always has that really powerful effect. And they would sit there bored. And one day I was giving an exam, and I hear two young students talk, they finished the exam, she said, I'm so bored, I can't stand this shit. So I called them over. And I said, do you really experience this as shit? Oh, professor, we love your cause. I said, no, 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 this is very important. It has nothing to do with me. See, I'm never bored here. But if you're bored and you see this as shit, tell me. Yes, I don't want to be here. My mother wants me to be here. My father wants me to be here. Nothing of this interests me. Now, often a professor or a teacher will get enraged. How dare you not be interested in the gold that I throw down upon your head? It's not gold if there's no concern for it, if there's no interest. So I said, do me a favor. One did, one didn't. Come to my office and let's talk about it. And this young lady came and we've had a lovely conversation. I said, what do you want to do? What are you interested in? She says, I want to be a hairdresser. That's what I want to be. I love cosmetics. I love makeup. So I said, why aren't you doing that? You could always go back to school later. You want to take courses of stuff you're interested in. By the way, by the time I quit uh, teaching and I left teaching, I I retired, 
Very few of my students were looking for an education. What they were looking for was a degree because we've convinced everybody to get the jobs that are still left in America. You need a degree. Forget what the degree is in, but you need a degree. Uh, An education to me is something that is is vital, that makes life really meaningful, Uh, uh, particularly if it's stuff that excites you and, and sustains you. Uh, that that to me is, is is what education is. But then again, I'm an old dinosaur, and and uh, all more and more of the colleges and schools are turning into, you know, since tuition could be two hundred thousand dollars for four years or more, and you better be able to get a job. So it becomes job training rather than education. And degree is the is the indicator that you have the proper training to go out and and get some kind of technical job or some kind of job that pays a, a real wage although i'm convinced that's all going to be right. disappearing as more and more robots uh you know when more and more jobs are shipped overseas and more and more jobs are done by machines that do it better uh than a human being can do it but anyway she came to my office we had this wonderful discussion uh, I have two stories like that. Another young man who's the same way. He wanted to cook. And they both said the same thing. My parents will die if I leave school. And my response always to that was, then your parents meant never better run for a bus. Because the shock of your leaving school and going doing something you love is so great that they'll die. Right? The other thing I used to hear is, my parents will kill me. You ever hear that? My, my father will kill me. I said... You better call the police in a hurry. Will your father really kill you? And my question always was, do you think your parents love you? They really love you. And if the answer was yes, I said, then sit down and have a heart-to-heart talk with them and tell them. You know that they want what's best for you, but your life has got to be lived the way you're going to live that life your own individuality. You want to be part of their family. You want to be part of society. You don't want to do anything that's wrong, but you love cosmetology. This other kid loved cooking. And he he left my class, and two years later he showed up and he said, "Uh, I finished um, one of the big schools in New York, Culinary Institute in New York. And he says, I'm a sous chef in a Manhattan restaurant, and I'm the happiest person in the world. I mean, you know, I wish the, all my stories were so successful, but they're not. Um, one of the young ladies I talked to that this course was shit, she finished it up with a glum expression. And the other one did leave. I don't know what happened to her, but most of the time you don't know what happens to your students when they do leave you. So, any thoughts? Hello? Are you still there? Oh, he's not there anymore. I'm sorry. Okay, he left. Let's talk about anxiety. Anxiety is a critically important emotion. And let me tell you where I think it comes from in terms of evolution. And I find myself saying this a lot on my show and other shows that I do. I think it started when we were hunter-gatherers. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons people don't want to believe in evolution is that uh, we have lunch until the day that we become lunch. It's an awful thought, but we all eventually are eaten up by something, if nothing else, the bacteria uh, that help us digest our food uh, begin to digest us the moment uh, where we die. Uh, So everything alive is eaten, animal uh, uh, and vegetable, eats and is eaten. Um, 
And so the hunter and the gatherer would be out in the bush looking for something to eat and trying to avoid being lunch. So as they were looking for lunch, they became aware that they could be lunch at any moment. And something would move in a bush. And that might be a rabbit that would make a nice lunch. Or it might be an animal of some type that would make of them a nice lunch. Anxiety causes us to focus intensely on the source of the potential danger in our lives. That's what I believe anxiety is there for, to focus intensely, to find out the truth of what's there, particularly when that truth is of our vital concern. Uh, I have certain medical conditions, uh, and my doctor insists that I come at least four times a year for blood work to make sure that certain conditions are worse and to make sure that some of the medications that I take to control those conditions aren't causing other conditions that can cause me harm, like blood pressure medicine, uh, uh, something to help me digest my food, uh, stuff like that. While that blood work is taken, I'm fine. And then as the days go by, my doctor sees me a week later so that everything is back from the lab and we can discuss it. When everything is back, uh, my anxiety begins to increase. There is something I now need to know. It is a vital concern to me. Once I hear the results, I'm either happy and giddy with relief he says to me, ah, I'll see you in four months, you're doing fine. Or something is not quite right, we have to find out what that is and what the treatment or cure or whether we ignore it. But we need to go for a test. At that moment, I'm not particularly anxious. I'm just unhappy. I'm afraid. I have fear. Uh, is this the other shoe that's going to drop? And at my age, I'm 75, uh, the possibility of a shoe dropping uh, and I don't think about this particularly every day, but the possibility of a shoe dropping is much greater than when I was 55 and certainly when I was 35 and certainly more than when I was 15. Why do people have such chronic anxiety? Lions are not necessarily going to kill us. Uh, most of the time we remain, if not healthy, free from serious illness. Um, uh, women have been having terrible anxiety. They've been convinced that breast cancer is around the corner. Uh, my wife's worst day of the year is to go for her mammography. Uh, and most of the women I know have the same bad day. But there are people with chronic anxiety. It never goes away. Why? In my experience, it is because they were raised under a system that said, believe your own eyes, you believe me or else. Some of the most anxious individuals I've ever worked with came out of alcoholic homes, homes where daddy or mommy was a really bad drinker and a bad drunk. And the other partner... This usually was the father was, well, I could I back this up. I worked in Flushing Hospital for 25 years. And in the first 15 years before the, the ethnic uh, aspects of the neighborhood changed, it was largely an Irish, working class Irish. Uh, and I didn't know this, 
most of the men were working class people. They would come home and on the way home would stop in a bar and have a couple of beers. And then they would come home and start drinking. Uh, not all, but a lot. It was much larger than the Jewish population I had come from, where there was really no drinking whatsoever. The neighborhood changed and became uh, Asian, a lot of Asians, and there was even less drinking there. But during those first 15 or so years, uh, before the neighborhood became much more Asian and less Irish, um, many of the individuals uh, were heavy drinkers. And the child would, would be subjected to, the family would be subjected to, with many of these individuals, their anger and their frustration that, again, wasn't admitted the shame was not admitted. It was not worked through. This is my life, and I have to live it as best I can. There was this feeling of dread that, that my life is nothing, I'm a nobody, and they would take it out on the kids, they would take it out on the wife. And if the kids said, Daddy is drunk, Mommy would often say, No, he just doesn't feel well. And this creates tremendous anxiety. When we are lied to, and then start to lie to ourselves, which all psychotherapists see as essential part of their work, the defense mechanisms are denials. They're denials of what we believe is so, and what we believe is so is very often necessary for our survival. You have to know it was daddy who was drunk, not that he wasn't feeling well, and therefore you start to feel guilt, and why am I so afraid and angry of daddy? Why? What's wrong with me that daddy gets so mad? What am I doing wrong? So the confusion that can come out of these childhoods could be a lifelong confusion in which there's guilt, shame, and chronic anxiety. Because we have to know what is true and real for our own individual survival and our own individual choices that under difficult circumstances will be the best we could have, make. Anxiety involves certain kinds of breathing. And one of the exercises I would do with patients and with students who, chronic, who were chronically anxious, who had panic disorder, uh, and I can't really show you how to do this on the air, but I'll just talk about it in a few minutes of my remaining time. I would say to an individual, when you feel anxious, two things you have to do. The first is ask yourself, what is the truth that I'm hiding from? What is it that I need to find out? And the second thing is to breathe diaphragmatically. I would have them put their hand under their breastbone. And if they can, from their own history, what does it look like when somebody is sleeping on their back, particularly a baby, and totally relaxed? To be totally relaxed is to be not anxious. What happens if you watch a baby is that the stomach goes up and down, not the chest. Chest breathing is anxious breathing. It creates imbalances in oxygen and carbon dioxide and creates more and more kinds of problems for the individual, setting off increased anxiety. When you can breathe, and I would have people do this. Start the anxiety, put a pad next to you, and write down whatever comes into your mind after spending a moment or two breathing diaphragmatically. 
And things would come out on that pad that the individual would say, gee, I think I understand this. I know. How did this happen? What is it that I'm writing here? It has this ring of truth to it. Uh, To be able to breathe, to be able to create relaxation in the face of the anxiety, uh, and then to be able to ask yourself, where's the bullshit? What bullshit am I telling myself that very often is the bullshit that came out of my my, my childhood? Uh, One of the really helpful things about psychotherapy is to be able to undo and rework with the help of another person who is respectful, who's kind, who's intelligent, and who sees us outside of the framework in which we were raised, uh, uh, is to be able to work through some of the lies uh, that, and untruths that bind us uh, and make us blind to the very critical things we need to know to make appropriate decisions so that we're not anxious, but instead feel that we're living a real life that has creativity and love and and all of the positive things uh, that make life worth living and make us the human being we want to be. So I really can't go through this as uh, much more. but uh, meditation is enormously helpful. It's become very big uh, in psychotherapy, in psychology. I just had an issue of the American psychologist trying to uh, put numbers on it because good scientists do that. I wish them luck. Uh, but more and more people do find that meditation is incredibly important because if you could turn off the panic that starts uh, when you're worried about your, you know, what's happening to you, uh, and, and uh, understand that um, you're not having a heart attack, you're not about to die, but you're having something that is a positive experience in a painful way. And that is uh, something that's trying to take you to a more truthful, insightful uh, way of living your life. Uh, meditation is good. Uh, exercise, very important. Uh, for keeping yourself breathing properly, keeping yourself in good physical shape. All of these things, I think, are very, very important. And more and more of the research that's coming out uh, makes them ancillary and even the focus of good kinds of psychotherapy. And once again, let me say that I use the word therapy, but put it in quotes. This is not real therapy. This is not medical treatment. This is uh, metaphorical therapy for metaphorical illnesses for the problems of being human. I think I'm done. I want to thank my caller. I haven't had a caller in a long time. And I'm sorry he hung up. He had something better to do. Go somewhere. I hope he's still on the line. But I do appreciate his call. It makes this show so much easier and more fun to do when there's another living person at the other end of the space. Anyway, I hope this will be helpful to people. Uh, one more emotion before I leave. I forgot it. The emotion of stuckness. You ever say, I feel stuck? What your experience is stuckness. And again, the time here is to figure out the bullshit that has gotten you stuck and see what decisions might be made with yourself or with the help of others to uh, uh, get unstuck. Because to be stuck in a bad job, to be stuck in a bad relationship, to be stuck in any kind of a painful situation and experience anxiety, to experience all of the negative, the powerful emotions, 
including feeling stuck. Very, very unhappy emotion. Okay, folks. Anybody else want to call? I have four minutes. My wife is expecting me to watch. I think we're going to watch Homeland. I used to love the show Homeland, if you have uh, uh, have uh, cable to see Homeland. Uh, it has become a very dark, very unhappy show that, to me, parallels the quagmire we are in in the Middle East, for which there is no exit and no winning, just more killing and more death. Uh, anyway, uh, that's, that's, uh, this has been a, a nice experience, this show tonight. I want to get involved, so maybe I'll go in and watch Home, uh, Homeland with her if that's what she wants, or maybe there's something else that has watching a show together called uh, Indian Summers. It's a series about on, on Masterpiece Theatre, PBS, about the Raj, the end of the Raj, the British rule in India, uh, from the point of view of people who are uh, uh, in government and, and uh, untouchables and part of the uh, social hierarchy. Uh, anyway, uh, I think maybe we have an episode of that to watch. But anyway, that's where I'm going now. I thank you for whoever is here, and I thank you in advance for whoever might come to my show. Uh, and I'll thank you if you tell your friends, gee, I learned a lot from his shows, and uh, you go into my archive, and uh, if my numbers go up, I really do feel good. I feel pride. I feel happiness. So good night. Goodbye. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.